This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome, it's great to be with you again in 2024. I wish I could say all the attacks on freedom, family, faith and life and a prosperous economy were going to stop this year. It's only February, but the threats are mounting and they are coming from both sides of politics, as you will see from today's program. Some of it is deliberate, some of it is because politicians are cowards or clueless or both. The unresolved freedom of speech and freedom of religion wars that were turbocharged by the 2017 same-sex marriage debate are only hotting up. The Albanese government and a large group of woke liberals are determined to crush your free speech in 2024, as you will see through today's program. Parents' rights to give their kids a woke-free education are under threat like never before. In a moment, I'll speak to Christian Schools Australia Director of Public Policy, Mark Spencer, about the latest developments. My friend Kiralee Smith of the Girls and Women's Rights Advocacy Group Binary has had some legal wins, which we'll celebrate and which we'll talk about, but the legal action against me by two LGBTIQA plus drag queens continues to grind through the appeals process. I'll talk about that another day. On the economic front, Australians are only just now getting a taste of what net zero policy policies championed by Labor, Liberal, Greens and the Teals really means. I'll speak to the Executive Director of the Institute for Public Affairs, Scott Hargraves, about why the lights went out in Victoria this week. No one should be surprised. The IPA and the Australian energy market operator have been warning about blackouts for years as a result of closing coal-fired power stations. Yet politicians on both sides of the aisle remain wedded to the net zero policies, which for 500,000 Victorians this week meant net zero electricity. It's unbelievable. To win a war and to break through to a better future, you've got to know your enemy and what they're up to. That's why we must talk about the bad news and who is behind it. We've got to wake people up. Many don't even know there's a war on. But you've also got to inspire your troops that a better future awaits that is worth fighting for. Myself and so many others, including the amazing team here at ADH-TV, fight the culture wars every day because we are rebelling against what our elites are serving up. You and I know that on balance, kids will flourish if they have a married mum and dad wherever possible. We know it's healthy for kids to be affirmed in their biological gender, not told they might have been born in the wrong body. We know that killing unborn babies to birth and not supporting their mothers is wrong. We know that windmills and solar panels cannot deliver cheap and reliable electricity. 
To borrow from the magnificent Alliance for Responsible Citizenship conference that uh, I had the privilege of attending last year in London, there is a better story. It's one of economic abundance, Australia has the natural resources, and it can be one of flourishing families and communities. We have terrific people and the social capital needed. You and I know this. Sadly, our political class does not, or they lack courage to fight for the truth. I'm here to keep fermenting a revolution, a non-violent one, of course, in the tradition of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, William Wilberforce, and Jesus of Nazareth. Your and my hope in a better future for our children and grandchildren is what keeps us going, and we must not take our eye off this hope. So let's keep informed, by all means consume political commentary, but above all, make 2024 a year of political action. Join a party, support a campaign organisation, get involved. May the revolution gather momentum. Well, the ABC's documentary series Nemesis has further exposed how ugly and broken our politics is. The examination of the coalition's years in power under three prime ministers, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison, exposes a toxic culture and ongoing civil war within the Liberals and Nationals. The coalition is certainly a house divided with deep running hatreds that sadly persist. In sit-down interviews for the program, obscenities are liberally used to describe each other with the F-word, the lingua franca of politics. In one instance, Barnaby Joyce, former Deputy Prime Minister, looks down the barrel of the camera and calls Malcolm Turnbull an SHIT head. Turnbull describes the current Liberal leader Peter Dutton as a thug. How he maintains his membership of the Liberal Party is anyone's guess. Abbott declined to appear on the program, passing up the opportunity to get square in the same way others use Nemesis to offer free character assessments, justifying their own actions and settling old scores. Morrison comes out of it poorly, with many colleagues asserting that he played a double game in both leadership coups, something he denies. After the chaos and bile of the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd coups, no one expected the coalition to follow suit. But they did, and Nemesis reveals the Conservatives to be just as bad, if not worse, than Labor. As someone involved in the same-sex marriage debate and 2017 plebiscite, Nemesis brought back old memories and reinforced that it was the Liberals who facilitated a policy that is unjust for children, has trampled freedom of speech and religion, and turbocharged LGBTIQA plus gender-fluid ideology with disastrous consequences for families. Leading left-wing figures in the Liberal Party, such as Christopher Pine, reveled in their opportunity to campaign for change, while leading Conservative figures, like Morrison, squibbed the fight. The failure of most senior Christian and Conservative Liberals to get into the marriage debate in public left a vacuum which was filled by the Liberals' gay activist parliamentarians and their supporters, such as North Queensland MP Warren Ench. The public did not get to hear the other side of the argument, as they did in the voice debate where Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price stood up. No significant coalition figure stood up during the same-sex marriage plebiscite in the way that Price did in 2023. Things could have been radically different if that had occurred. 
Now, Malcolm Turnbull clearly sees implementing the redefinition of marriage as the crowning achievement of his prime ministership. He gloated about it during the Nemesis interviews. The canary in the coal mine, of course, as a consequence of this, uh, is the Christian school movement. And they've been fighting for their lives since, with Morrison and Albanese both kicking the religious freedom can down the road as activists try and impose their new legal concept of gender on Christian and other non-government schools. Now, LGBTIQA plus activists hate the fact that there are schools which teach that marriage is heterosexual and that gender is binary. And now that the Liberals have facilitated same-sex marriage, Christian schools have the law against them. Nemesis underscores the importance of the Family First political party project. We simply must have parliamentarians of character and principle elected. Family First is not seeking to be a party of government, but it can over time through courageous and principled MPs help shift politics to a place of civility where the national interest, not self-interest, is served. Well, in the past six years since marriage was redefined in law, addressing the undermining of freedom of religion and freedom of expression, that is freedom of speech, created by this change has been promised by no less than three prime ministers. That's Malcolm Turnbull, Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese. So far, no protections have been put in place and it would seem the Albanese government is actually making things worse for freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Ordinary Australians continue to be dragged before tribunals and commissions by activists for misgendering people identifying as the opposite sex. Religious schools continue to face legal harassment for seeking to maintain a community which upholds parents' rights to educate their children in their beliefs. And people continue to face persecution at work for their beliefs about marriage and gender. Now, last month, the Albanese government's Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, announced the long-awaited religious discrimination bill, which is designed to provide these protections for speech and religion, would now be further delayed until July. Dreyfus is also presiding over a proposal by the Australian Human Rights Commission for a new Human Rights Act, which would take away human rights of freedom of religion and freedom of expression. Always beware of governments proposing human rights protections. That's generally going the other way. Now, Christian and other religious schools are fighting for their very existence as LGBTIQA plus political activists seek to strip parents' rights to have their children educated in a community where their children are taught the truth about marriage and gender. Joining me now to discuss this, very challenging environment is someone who is at the front line in the battle for the survival of religious schooling and parental rights in Australia. That's Christian Schools Australia Director of Public Policy, Mark Spencer. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Mark, um, are you confident a pathway can be found to allow your schools to be free to maintain the ethos parents expect of them? Uh, I don't think I'm ever confident until I actually see the legislation pass through both houses of, of parliament. I'm hopeful. Um, I'm a man of faith, a man of hope. So there is always hope. And I think there is the possibility of uh, a bipartisan position where we have the, the government and the opposition providing adequate protections for religious freedom. I mean, it should be not controversial 
This is legislation that's the missing piece of the federal uh, human rights protections. Everyone agrees it should happen. Um, what we have been sidetracked from in the past, and certainly in, in 2022, the whole process was hijacked by a whole range of false claims, a whole lot of lies about and the so-called behaviour of, of Christian schools and other faith-based schools. And if we can address those honestly and fairly and confront those issues properly, then we should have a solid basis for a bypassing bill that will provide adequate protections. Yeah, look, um, I, I certainly obviously share your hope and, and desire, and we'll have a look at some of those claims uh, in, a, in just a few moments. But before we get to that, um, just in terms of the environment that we are facing here in 2024, as we seek to see these freedoms uh, protected, um, I mentioned the Australian Human Rights Commission's proposed Human Rights Charter. Now, this proposal actually, um, as, as it's been put forward and there's been a parliamentary inquiry uh, late last year, the proposal actually takes away parents' rights to educate their children in their religious uh, views about marriage and biology. Um, according to the submission by the uh, Human Rights Law Alliance, and I know your submissions as well, Mark, pick this up, um, the proposed new Human Rights Charter um, takes away the, quote, liberty of parents and, where applicable, legal guardians to ensure the religious and moral education of their children in conformity with their own convictions which is an absolute right in Article 18.4 uh, um, uh, of the, um, sorry, which this is completely missing, sorry, from the Australian Human Rights Commission model for freedom of thought, conscious religion and belief. So this is a uh, really much a diminution of the international covenants which Australia has signed up for to protect uh, parents' rights uh, for freedom of religion and to educate their children, their belief. Um, what on earth is going on here? Yeah, you're absolutely correct, Lyle. I mean, the, the International Covenant, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, to which Australia is a signatory and has been for, for decades now, makes it very clear in Article 18.4. It's, it's been recognised by the Human Rights, UN Human Rights Committee as being an absolute right for parents to educate the children in accordance with, with their beliefs. But despite the clarity in international law, despite the clear language of international law, that uh, protection is missing from all the Australian domestic human rights charters in the ACT, in Victoria, and most, most recently in Queensland, and in this proposed federal charter. So we've got Australian uh, bodies, regulatory bodies, quasi-government bodies, who are meant to be protecting human rights, who seem insistent on, some would say hell-bent, on uh, you know, ignoring a fundamental human right for parents of faith to actually exercise that, that right to educate their children in accordance with their faith. Yeah, so you know, you, you've expressed hope that you could get a bipartisan um, piece of legislation that would protect those parents' rights so that, so that your schools can operate in a way where you can create a community where children are taught what the parents believe about marriage and the, the truth about biological gender, these two iconic issues, there's other issues as well. But uh, on one hand, you've got, you know, political sort of soundings that, yes, we want to protect those rights. And on the other hand, you've got the bureaucrats serving up these sorts of charters and proposed legislation. Um, do you think the politicians really know what's going on or is this a case of, of other forces at play? Well, I certainly would suggest that there's been a number of uh, politicians who've been poorly briefed on, on many of these issues. Um, you know, this isn't just an issue for Christian schools, it's an issue for Islamic schools, it's an issue for a range of other faith-based schools, Jewish schools, other, other schools around the country. 
This is about people of faith wanting to, and many of them new migrants to, to our nation, many of them minority religions as, as well, looking to actually ensure that, that their faith can be transmitted and shared with their children. You know, it's a fundamental attack on families. Now, whether you are a person of faith or not, you want to be able to raise your children in accordance with what you believe, what you believe is in the best in their best interest, and what you believe is uh, you know, how they, they should grow up and, and and feed into our world. Now, that that's a fundamental right, and government bureaucrats, particularly, are just not addressing that. They're not providing those protections. We're still hopeful, but there's still a lot of work to be done, and we need everyone to actually stand up and say, "Yes, this is important to me." Let their MPs know that these are things that are important to them. Um, I know some people claim it's uh, you know there's no widespread support for it, but there is, and we've mm. already found that out uh, previously. No, that's right. And look, nothing less is at stake than the ability of religious schools, Christian, Islamic schools, other religions to ensure that there's an environment where. Um, you know, males identifying as females are not in the girls' sporting teams or change rooms, all that sort of stuff. Um, this is what's at stake with these uh, religious freedom issues. Now, some of the misinformation around this was uh, clearly demonstrated uh, in this week's ABC TV documentary called Nemesis, uh, which uh, is a look back at the um, the Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison years, this week focusing on the Morrison Prime Ministership and his attempt in 2022 to legislate a religious discrimination bill to provide these protections and certainty for your schools. Um, unfortunately, that bill was torpedoed by a number of Liberals who, who spoke out and voted against their own government's attempt to protect freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Let's just take a look at some of the footage. I signalled early that I would be unlikely to support it. It's not okay to be cruel, offensive or humiliating just because you can say it with conviction or point to a religious text to back it up. It became clear to me that it was um, to preference or privilege religious views above others. You know, one of the things I thought was very strange at the beginning of the election year 2022 was that we spent the back end of summer focusing on this religious discrimination bill, uh, which was not a priority in the community. I mean, no one in the community after two years of COVID was saying, geez, we have to have this bill. That's, that's critical. I mean, it was, uh, we were massively out of line with the public in pursuing this and spending all this time. I mean... Now, now, Mark, um, you were very involved in that um, in that at the time in 2020. It was high drama in the parliament. Um, you've got Senator Andrew Bragg, who's still in the parliament with the Liberal Party, saying that there was no appetite in the community. I would have thought parents would see it as a priority to make sure that uh, their their daughters are protected at school from biological males and and they, that their school communities are allowed to teach their views about marriage. What on earth is Bragg talking about? Well, with all due respect to Senator, you must have a fairly short memory. I mean, the, the 2019 election, uh, there was lots of commentary very clearly indicating that that uh, election was won by a Liberal Party off the back of people of faith and others concerned about family values. And they were only in government because of people who were concerned about these very issues. And yet uh, Senator Bragg seems very happy to, to throw them out the window when it's uh, politically inconvenient and uh, just focus on the, the goat cheese circle and uh, you know where he might be getting his support from. There was yeah. widespread community support. That was clear. Mm. Um, the Labor Party knew it as well. No, that's um, right. And, of course, without, um, the, 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 the bill has been promised, as we said at the start, by Malcolm Turnbull, who's he's no friend of uh, religious freedom. Um, uh, 
Anthony Albanese has even promised it uh, in government, and uh, and of course we're, we're still languishing. What about the other claims made in that clip by uh, Bridget Archer, the Liberal from Tasmania, uh, suggesting that somehow you know religious and Christian schools are somehow cruel to gay and transgender students? Again, complete complete furfies. You know, it's like the claim we've been having since 2018, in the, in the, again, politically motivated around the Wentworth by-election that, that uh, Christian schools are expelling gay kids uh, all over the place. And it simply doesn't happen. I mean, since 2018, no one's come forward with all this evidence of this massive number of, of, of gay kids being expelled because it simply doesn't happen. They're cared for, they're loved, they're, they're supported and nurtured, as all of our students are. Um, so, you know, those claims are just simply not correct. And, uh, you know, it's, it's those false claims, the sort of poor briefing that some of these MPs are getting and those claims not being tested that's led to the, the situation we're in now. That's right. It seems like it's a combination of um, of MPs being poorly briefed um, or the ideologues uh, certainly having captured the narrative and then you combine that with bureaucrats who are in sync with the um, uh, gender-fluid ideology and are looking to push that uh, as we're seeing through this corruption of the um, the ICCPR and this uh, Human Rights Charter. Mark, it's going to be a big year for religious freedom and a big year for Christian schools in particular. What is your advice to parents and other mainstream Australians who want to see the freedom of parents to educate their kids in their values kept in this great country of Australia? It seems like it's been a big year every year since 2018, Lyle, to be, yeah. to be honest. Um, you know, this, this pressure has been relentless um, and uh, we, we need to make sure we do start to draw a line or saying we want a solution, we want a fair solution. But what people of faith and even people of no faith who just want to be able to live their lives without government interference, without government telling them what they can and can't think, what they can and can't believe, what they can and can't do. If you just want the freedom to be able to raise your family in accordance with what you believe, then you need to be telling your MPs and your senators, it seems, as well, what what this is, what this means to you, how important it is to you, and how you want not people of faith to be privileged, that lie, that bunkum, but to be given an equal seat, seat at the table with everyone else. People of faith, people of no faith about freedom of conscience, belief, all those fundamental freedoms that are so much a part of our great country. Yeah, well said, Mark. Well, we'll certainly continue to watch this issue closely as the year transpired. We uh, appreciate your work on the front lines of it and uh, thank you for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, Lyle. Well, this week in Victoria, a storm caused power transmission towers to come down, effectively tripping a large part of Victoria's electricity grid, resulting in hundreds of thousands of people and businesses losing power. Now, was this just the result of wild weather or does it point to the consequences of net zero climate policies weakening the electricity grid? To help make sense of this, I'm joined by Scott Hargraves, the Executive Director of the Institute for Public Affairs in Melbourne. Scott, thanks so much for your time. Uh, you and the IPA have long warned of the fragility of the electricity grid because of the closure of cheap and reliable coal-fired power stations. Are your warnings coming true or was what we have seen simply an act of nature? Uh, definitely the warnings are coming true and I think people are starting to wake up in the, to this. There's been a, a revolt in Victoria even by the, the business community which has been slow to wake up. And I really do think, Lyle, that what we're seeing now is this is only going to end in one of two, two ways. Victoria will either bring down the national electricity market 
or it will actually bring down this mad rush to close down all of Australia's coal-fired power stations on ridiculous timeframes and replace them with intermittent renewable energy. Victoria's the canary in the coal mine. But what we saw yesterday is, as you say, it made the system more fragile. They're making it more fragile every day. But this is happening all around Australia. But let's say Victoria's at the vanguard. If Victoria's closed down Loyang in, by 2035, as they planned, we have a day, again, when there's a shortage of power, like we saw on Tuesday. Is New South Wales going to prop them up? Mm. What if New South Wales has already closed its Araring power station? Is Queensland going to prop up New South Wales and Victoria? This could actually bring down the national electricity market or what we'd actually really prefer is that we, as a nation, realise that these plans are mad, cannot be implemented uh, and they need to be uh, junked immediately and we need to get back to putting energy security first, the yeah. needs of consumers right at the forefront. Scott, are you aware of any you know, cost-benefit analysis, any engineering or economic studies that have been done to, to either prove or disprove, or presumably prove because we're heading at this in this direction at a great rate of knots? Has anyone actually done the work to decide and, and discover whether an economy like Australia's can be run on renewable energy? Uh, well, there's certainly been a lot of work done, but it's a lot of work that cannot be trusted. Um, the official uh, EMO work, so the Australian Energy Market Operator, uh, their planning division, which publishes the annual integrated system plan, and they're going through an update of that at the moment, they're drawing on work from uh, the CSIRO which is completely inappropriate. The, without going into the, the technical details, the CSIRO, which has an agenda to promote renewable energy, is supplying information to the Australian energy market operator, which has now got an agenda to promote renewable energy and which is trying to back up the Labor Party's plan that it took to the last election to say that, yes, we can get to 82% renewables by 2030, no problem at all, boss, um, there is an absolute uh, surfeit of such technical studies which have been well and truly uh, critiqued uh, by the IPA, by wonderful people like uh, Aidan Morrison and many others. Uh, ben Beattie uh, is also worth looking at. Um, and alternatively, around the world, uh, there are certainly the voices saying this mm. cannot work, but we are up against this avalanche of government propaganda and I'll just say as an aside, by the way, there are, um, uh, you may, to use the expression, good people. There are good people in the Australian energy market operator. They're the ones who kept the lights on on Tuesday, not because of the plans that were implemented, but in spite of them. Yep. Yep. There's so, a mm. constant push to make things less reliable and somehow these miracle workers keep the lights on for the most part, uh, but the guys who are running the planning division who troop into uh, Chris Bowen's office and say, yes, no worries, Minister, we can have a bright new renewables future. I do not trust them one bit. Yeah, it seems like, you know, obviously ideology is trumping engineering and economics. Um, Scott, um, I, I was interested to see comments by Victoria's Energy Minister Lily D'Ambrosio um, saying, and I quote, climate change and more frequent and extreme weather events sadly means that we're going to see more of that happening, i.e. what's happened uh, this week in Victoria. Now, she's clearly trying to blame climate change uh, for 
this power outage in Victoria. Is, is that an accurate characterisation of, of what's happening? Um, in a word, no. Uh, but as, as you know, uh, Lyle, this is something we see all over the world where uh, the very people that are putting in place these plans, then when they start to go wrong, uh, the, the idea of extreme weather events, climate change is used as their get-out-of-jail card. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, we've, we've, we've seen it with, uh, with flood events in Queensland or outages. Uh, speaking as a Victorian, this time of year, it's always changeable. Um, uh, it, was, it was certainly a storm um, uh, for, for some of those uh, uh, people in the, uh, in the middle of the most uh, intense parts of that storm. You certainly wouldn't want to be there. Uh, but this is not unprecedented by any means. No. Uh, and for the system to fail just because of that is, is absolutely unacceptable. Well, well, that's right. And uh, Victoria and, and you know, all of Australia has had a relatively minor, sum, uh, mild summer compared to what we normally get. I would hate to see what would have happened if we'd have had a normal hot summer uh, in Victoria and other parts of, of the country. And of course, AEMO, the energy market operator, has been warning about hot summers and the effect on uh, coal-fired power, on the weakened electricity grid, I should say, for some time. Um, Scott, um, news outlets, um, you know, the Melbourne Age in particular, use terms like ageing coal-fired power stations and cheap renewables. And again, it's, it seems to be trying to suggest that it's these old, inefficient, expensive coal-fired power stations that are causing the outages. And if only we had more cheap renewables in the grid. This is what the public is being served up. That's not really uh, true, is it? I really admire them, Lyle. The <laughs> ability to coordinate a propaganda campaign um, across Australia. So I did a search this morning on Google. The phrase ageing coal-fired power station returned 9,860 instances, including Chris Bowen, Lily D'Ambrosio. Uh, this morning, Daniel Westerman, the guy who uh, runs Emo, started talking about how all these power stations are old and approaching the end of their life. Now, this is absolutely a nonsense. As, as an engineer knows, as a mechanic knows, you know, the, li the life of an asset depends on how much maintenance you put into it, whether you commission refurbishment programs, uh, and then something like uh, Loyang A, which was only commissioned in the 1980s. This is nothing in the life of a power station. Power stations can easily have 70, 80-year lifetimes. If they weren't being starved of capital, uh, if they were actually allowed to commit to refurbishment plans, um, uh, they can operate for decades. They, we could even get to this mythical uh, 2050 number. And, you know, if you, bring, if you bought nuclear on, you could actually have net zero by 2050. So mm. that is absolute propaganda to keep saying ageing coal-fired power stations. To anyone listening in Queensland, your wonderful Kogan Creek power station, the most emissions and, uh, uh, efficient coal-fired power station in Australia, was commissioned in 2007. Yeah. That's yesterday. Yep. In, in engineering terms. Yep. Well, what about cheap renewables, though, um, Scott? That, that, that's the other phrase that's bandied around. Now, my understanding mm. is that without the taxpayer subsidies and without having factored in the costs of building transmission lines all over the, all over the countryside to, to hook up the cheap, uh, so-called cheap renewables with uh, the grid, uh, they're not actually cheap at all. Well, that's right. And again, it, it's, it's, it's a bait and switch. So uh, the, the cheapness is often uh, at a point in time in the national electricity market, wind farms will bid in at zero. We can even see negative prices in the, in the national electricity market. Indeed, we even, we even saw them bizarrely on, on Tuesday in, um, uh, in the middle of a crisis across the NEM um, because 
the things are already built, they're already subsidised, uh, they're trying to shove the energy anywhere. But by collapsing the wholesale energy price, what you've done is the, the coal-fired generators that it, and even the gas-fired generation uh, necessary to keep the lights on are starved of revenue. Mm. Uh, they operate for a much lower percentage of time. Um, they're asked to ramp up and down. They're driven out of the system. Plus, as you say, the only way you could get the sort of renewables that they want is to is to spend literally hundreds of billions of dollars on new transmission and distribution and backup and batteries. Origins has spent $400 million or promised to spend $400 million on a battery at the Mortlake Power mm. Station. This this is insane. Yeah, and these batteries, they, they can, what, power a city like Melbourne for five minutes, if that? Yeah, you know, hour, hour and a bit at most, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, an hour and a bit. Um, Scott, I think the last time you and I spoke was um, at the wonderful Alliance for Responsible Citizenship Conference in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big part of that conference was looking at the, the global energy debate and what's happening with uh, renewables. And uh, we heard from Professor Stephen Coonan, who um, has written the book uh, Unsettled, uh, is a critic, uh, Bjorn Lomberg and others. But Stephen Coonan told uh, Amanda Stoker, who was interviewing him on stage, a former coalition, Senator, uh, when she asked what should be done, he said we should cancel the climate crisis. Now, that's a pretty blunt statement, but uh, this was because of his concern that people in developing countries can't get proper electricity and that, of course, the people in our suburbs uh, are suffering high electricity prices. And of course, now we're seeing blackouts. Why do you think that um, we have both sides of politics, including the coalition, there were 15 coalition parliamentarians at the ARC conference in London, um, but yet they remain wedded as a coalition to net zero as well. It's just that Labor is trying to get us there quicker. Um, This is a bipartisan problem, isn't it? Uh, It it certainly is. And um, uh, it's... Uh, we will never stop actually uh, trying to say it's time to uh, cancel the climate crisis. Uh, There's no justification for the policies that are being addressed all over the world. But certainly there is in the interim, even while we're doing that, Lyle, and we must keep working to that end, we could say that the measures that have been taken in the energy systems across the world in the name of that net zero goal um, are actually first of all, highly destructive, and secondly, they have very little to do with emissions. I mean, if it was anything to do with emissions in Australia, if, if it was honestly about emissions, how could you possibly stand up and say that we must maintain a prohibition on nuclear energy? The fact that they're so determined to outlaw both coal and nuclear in Australia tells you that what it's really about is the massive lobby that wants to sell Australians uh, solar panels which are almost entirely from China, Mm. and also these massive wind turbines, which used to be from China and Europe, but in the future are going to be also entirely from China. There's massive amounts of money flowing into this. And as uh, as a great man once said uh, back in the 70s, follow the money, Lyle. Yeah. So why do do the coalition remain wedded to this policy then? Why aren't there... Politicians, besides, I mean, you've got your Senator Matt Canavans and Alex Antiches uh, and the like, terrific voices in this space, uh, yet marginalised by the coalition leadership. Why won't the coalition leadership tell Australians the truth, unpack the sort of facts that you've just given us here today? Well, I think it's time that they really uh, draw a line under the Morrison government. It was Scott Morrison uh, who walked. Uh, the coalition into net zero by 2050. 
he removed any chance that the coalition had to actually fight an election as they had done previously on the cost of living aspect of, of energy. Um, the coalition never wins a climate election, but they sure can win an energy election. Uh, people want secure, reliable power uh, at an affordable cost. They want a manufacturing sector, uh, which we're uh, losing in Australia because energy, uh, because of energy costs and the volatility in the energy system. So it's time for the coalition to say, well, that was the Morrison government. That's not the future of a Dutton government. Uh, we reject that measure. We absolutely walk it back. And we absolutely walk back all of these interim plans that have been made in pursuit of net zero, that we went from a 2050 timeline to suddenly we had to do 82% renewables by 2030. Victoria wants all its coal-fired power stations closed by 2035. Queensland has made the same decision. Mm. WA wants its out by 2030. This, this, this is insanity. So the coalition can take a leadership position to say energy security comes first. We must have an affordable, reliable power system for Australia. Well, some free advice there for the coalition in the national interest. Uh, Scott Hargraves, thank you so much for giving of your time today. Thanks for having me, Lyle. Well, it's great to have Kiralee Smith, the spokeswoman for Binary, a campaign organisation that fights to protect the vulnerable from the lies of the LGBTIQA plus political movement. Kiralee, welcome. Uh, you've had some legal wins recently. Uh, tell us about them. Yeah, look, I, I have got a big smile on my face all year so far. Uh, we had our, our court case, the vilification complaint that was uh, put into the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal was dismissed. The New South Wales Attorney General intervened and said that was not the appropriate court to hear this matter. So uh, that's fantastic. And then uh, the AVO application that went to hearing last October, uh, that decision was handed down at the end of January and the application was denied uh, because you know, my behaviour, of course, is not violence mm -hmm. and nor does it rise to the level of harassment where a court needs to intervene. Uh, I didn't harass anyone. I'm simply defending uh, women's sex-based rights and for sports services and spaces. And, uh, and I am going after the policies, the bad policies of Australian sporting organisations like Football Australia that have allowed males to participate in female competitions. So, so far we've had five from five. We've got one more complaint before the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, but we're hoping that will be dismissed because it's a very, very similar case to the one that's already been dismissed. Well, congratulations, Kiralee. I know that uh, our audience who have been following your story over these uh, last months and year or so uh, would be delighted as I am. Um, just to, for those who may not be aware, these AVOs, apprehended violence order, this is against uh, someone who was upset that you might be violent because of you calling out a, a male playing soccer with the girls, um, misgendering people. This is the sort of legal action that's been taken against you, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's more than two, but there's... These specific two males uh, are upset that I've identified them, one via a photograph, the other never named him, and the other um, taking a screenshot from Football New South Wales, uh, their public Facebook page, and, uh, and they're upset with me for identifying them as males in female competitions.
Yeah, outrageous. Well, it's terrific that some common sense has been shown by the courts. It's ridiculous, as we keep saying, that you've even had to go there at all. But good on you for fighting the fight and well done to the legal team behind you. I've had the privilege of meeting your lawyer. He's a terrific guy. So um, that's great. And um, I hope that encourages others who are facing similar legal action at the moment. Kiralee, there's um, many threats out there that are looming in 2024, but one of the biggest is from the New South Wales MP and LGBTIQA plus political activist, Alex Greenwich. We've spoken about this before, but his so-called gender conversion therapy bill is back. It was due to be uh, debated in the New South Wales parliament last week. It's been delayed for some reason, but just remind our audience why Alex Greenwich's gen uh, conversion therapy bill is so dangerous. Well, to put it plainly, he wants to erase women's rights. That, that's the basic fundamental uh, truth of this bill. He is misnamed it the Equality Bill, and what he wants to do is allow males uh, and females, but it's, it, we all know that the real risk is where males self-identify as female. They'll have, you know, full access to our spaces, our services, our sports. We will have no legal recourse. We will have no ability to oppose or complain about these males in our spaces. Uh, it's 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 misogyny on steroids, Lyle. It's really a hate-filled attack against women in particular, but also our children, because it's going to um, make a way for our children to be on this pathway of irreversible treatments, of lies and deception that they can change their sex when they can't. We'll end up with a generation of children that are deeply harmed, deeply scarred, yeah. and are not able to come back from the harm that will be done if this bill passes. Yeah, well, let's just break. I call it um, a conversion therapy bill. It started off that, as, as you say, it's, it's called the equality bill now. They try and dress it up. But uh, it allows uh, young people, I think as young as 16, to self-identify uh, of the opposite gender. Uh, it criminalises counsellors and, and, and others from uh, encouraging children to avoid puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, the gender clinics. Um, I was intrigued also about another provision in this bill, Kiralee. Well, there's, there's a couple, but, but one um, which relates to commercial surrogacy. Now, now, commercial surrogacy for the... To explain to our audience what that involves and how deeply unethical it is. Well, it's selling children and children yeah. are not for sale. It's unbelievable. It's renting a woman's womb uh, for the sake of buying her baby. And it, it is absolutely gobsmacking in 2024 that we even have to have this conversation alongside the gender conversation. It's, uh, it's slavery. It's putting women in servitude and bondage. It's like I can't use enough harsh language yeah. to say how appalling it is to think that legalising the buying and selling of children is okay. It, it is not That's okay. Right. And, and I think it's worth pointing out, Kirli, you know, it, it's strange that this is um, tied up in this equality bill about so-called gay conversion therapy and, uh, you know, children changing the gender. And you've got this uh, commercial surrogacy provision thrown in. But um, people need to realise that Alex Greenwich was one of the leaders of the same-sex marriage campaign in the years leading up to the 2017 plebiscite. And commercial surrogacy is the great unfinished business of the gay marriage campaign. People said there were no consequences to this, but they need commercial surrogacy so that two blokes who are socially infertile can acquire children by the unethical means that you've just so eloquently described. Um, this is a terrible bill. It is, as you rightly say, misogynist. And uh, we'll keep an eye on it. I don't know what the timeframes are, but um, it's still progressing through the parliament. Uh, what would be your message to Chris Minns, the Premier of New South Wales, about uh, allowing this business to be conducted in the, in the parliament? 
Uh, look, it's shameful. It's utterly shameful that it's even being considered. Chris Minns and his party need to stand up and do what's right. They need to protect and promote women and children. Uh, they need to defend women and children. And, you know, by entertaining the nonsense contained within this bill, uh, they're sending a clear message to all families, women and children in New South Wales, that uh, they don't have our best interest at heart. But I also know that they care a lot about the numbers and about what people think. So I really encourage viewers to not just email uh, their local members, but ring them, make an appointment, uh, uh, print off some fact sheets, go down and hand deliver it to your local MPs because they need to get the message loud and clear that this is unacceptable. Absolutely. And sadly, the Liberal opposition in New South Wales is missing in action. There is no sustained political opposition to what Greenwich is doing. And uh, this is this is the great tragedy of our politics. Um, Kiralee, moving on to uh, to Victoria, um, the pressure's mounting on Victorian Liberal leader, John Pesuto, um, with another woman joining uh, Moira Deeming, whom he expelled from uh, his parliamentary party, and Kelly Jane Keane, the UK activist, in suing Pesuto for defamation. Uh, tell us what the latest is. Yeah, Angie Jones was one of the organisers of the Let Women Speak event and she's joined the action, which is great to hear. I know Angie personally. Uh, she has, you know, spent her life working for marginalised women and, uh, you know, she's gone through some really horrible things in the last few years and particularly as a result of what John Pesuto has said about her in public, branding her as a Nazi or Nazi sympathiser has just been dreadful um, and the implications for her life has been you know, uh, I can't say a lot, but it's been really difficult for mm. her, as it has for Kelly J. What we saw happen in New Zealand, I believe, was a direct result. The violence and the yep. intimidation, uh, the removal of free speech in that country was a direct result of what happened in Victoria. So it's fantastic that uh, these two women have joined Moira in her uh, case against John Pesuto. These women have done nothing wrong. They have simply, you know, turned up to an event where they want to speak about how different policies impact women in the state of Victoria and they have been harassed, they have been slurred, they've been defamed. And so this action is a very, very important action, not just for these three women, but for all women and men in the state of Victoria and in our country, that we are able to stand up and say these things, to simply speak. We're not asking to do anything else other than to have an informed, rational conversation about the issues that affect us. Kiri, I don't understand why every Liberal politician in the country and every grassroots member isn't uh, on John Pesuto's back telling him just to apologise so that this defamation action can go away. I mean, clearly it was wrong for him to smear these women as Nazi sympathisers. But uh, anyway, who knows why John Pesuto is pursuing this, uh, but uh, he could end it tomorrow. Kiralee, um also in Victoria, there are news reports, and uh, you've reported this on the Binary blog, um, that the prestigious Geelong Grammar School is allowing a year nine, you know, probably a, a boy of about 14 or 15 years old, biological male, to share dormitory accommodation with the girls. Surely that is every parent's worst nightmare. Absolutely. And one father drove many hours to go and remove his girl, uh, his, his daughter from that situation because it is unacceptable. There's no other circumstance in which we would allow a teenage boy to room with a teenage girl. In fact, it would be against the law to do so uh, in, in many ways. So this is unacceptable. The Geelong Grammar School are doubling down and saying that they're being inclusive and um, accepting and tolerating this sort of behaviour, which is is utterly insane. It, put girl, it puts girls at risk. I mean, 
mean, what's ha- what happens to the girls who, who want to oppose this, who uphold biological reality over and above this ideological position? Um, but, you know, unfortunately it's not the only school, Lyle. We're seeing, yeah. I-, I asked for back-to-school stories and was mm. inundated with stories yeah. of what's going on in both state and private schools around the country. You can go to my blog to have a look mm. at that. But it's really disheartening and really sad that the education system or sector has been so captured by this ideology. It's not based on science, not based on reality. Uh, it's purely the pushing of this uh, ideological uh, position that really does advantage the males. Absolutely. And uh, it's not just the uh, elite private schools like Geelong Grammar. You um, you posted on, on X about uh, an independent Christian school, you know, an evangelical Bible-believing, uh, so-called Bible-believing Christian school in your local area that is allowing uh, a child to, to identify as the opposite gender. What, what can you tell us about that? Well, I can't tell you a lot. Um, You know, the school has refused to respond to my inquiries. I know that they've been speaking to other parents. Um, You know, they're finding it difficult. But, Lyle, I will say that I contacted them and many other schools several years ago and asked them for their policy on this because I'm you and I could see that this is exactly what would happen and they refused to go there and now they're reaping what they've sown and, yeah. well, they didn't sow, so, you know, there's no fruit for them. So now they're in this really difficult situation where, you know, they're going, oh, the law says this and we're going to get slammed if we do that and we have to, you're like, well, if yeah. you just stuck to the truth and what was plain and right, we wouldn't be in this situation, would we? So I'm yeah. willing to support anyone who wants to stand up and help them and support the parents, the staff, uh, the school. Uh, but we need people of courage and integrity to stand up and draw a line in the sand. Yeah, it, it disturbs me greatly. Uh, I'm a product of the independent Christian school movement. My children went to uh, similar schools. And the idea of uh, the Christian and the, the Hebrew scriptures is to encourage young people to be bold in the face of lies like, you know, the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den who was willing to put his life at risk for the truth. And yet we have these Christian schools now willing to accommodate a lie because our culture says it has to. Um, It's very disturbing. It's a terrible example to young people who we want to shape and form to be bold and courageous. Uh, Kiralee, that's all we have time for today, but I really appreciate you giving of your time again and look forward to speaking with you many, many more times over the course of 2024 as we continue to fight the good fight. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lyle. Welcome back, and I look forward to uh, this year as well. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks so much for your company. For more political commentary, go to familyfirstparty.org.au and sign up and become a supporter or a member. Now, before I go, I just want to say one thing. It's time to join the revolution. Watching commentary and howling at your TV or device screen is not good enough anymore. Come and join me and the Family First team in the political fight, familyfirstparty.org.au. There is also plenty of motivation for the fight right here on ADH TV. Make it your go-to for news and commentary. It's great to be back in 2024. Join me again next week for another episode as together we cast better vision for your family's future and our nation. In the meantime, keep speaking up.